Welcome to the Potter's House Community Church's podcast. Join us weekly as we feature our Sunday sermons. The Potter's House Community Church exists to help people be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus Christ. We hope today's message encourages you as we dive into God's Word. So grab your favorite drink and let's listen to today's sermon. So show me your mysteries, my God. Today's passage is is one where we're kind of hitting two different themes in our in our scripture today. Um, and and so it's going to be kind of two parts. Uh, and it's two very uh, non-confrontational kind of topics. Uh, I say that very facetiously. The first one is government. Um, nobody has opinions on that. Um, and uh, the second one is is death. And as... We are reminded of this morning, um, that's a very real thing, and, and even as I talk about things in this message today, I've had conversations with several of you lately relating to that issue and funerals and those kind of things, and, uh, and so as, as I talk, don't feel like I'm talking at you based on our conversation, but just I'm trying to, to give us biblical wisdom uh, to all of us and guiding us in these things. But let's jump into our passage for today. We're in Genesis chapter 47. And and so where we are is Joseph is in charge over Egypt. He's ruling, he's running everything for Pharaoh. He's collected the food um, and now he's distributing the food, selling it back to the people, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so here in Genesis 47, his dad has already and the rest of the family, they've moved. Uh, Jacob is living there in Egypt as well at this point. Um, And so uh, let's jump in, starting with verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. In exchange for the grain that they bought, uh, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's, and there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we... And we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So, 
we read this and we just think about this in a kind of government perspective, this seems pretty bad, right? Like he, he milks them dry, everything they've got, turns it all over to Pharaoh. And in the end, they, they're like, well, our whole lives and where we live and everything will be Pharaoh's if we just have food to eat. And, and so it seems like Joseph is, is really uh, a hard taskmaster that he's really just taking it to these people and getting everything out of them. But then once he's got all of this power, once he's got this situation, let's see what the terms are that he actually sets up for the people next. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So what are his terms? Joseph's like, yeah, we're going to do all this, but here's how it's going to work. You get to keep your house. You get to still live on your land. You get to still have the same, same land for making crops. I'm going to give you the grain to start it off with. And in the end, you get to keep 80% and you give 20% back to the government. So he's got a 20% tax is basically how this works out. And so before, before we cast too many stones at Joseph, let's consider that situation versus where we are. Okay. Um, in Canada, I, I've, and in the states where I'm from too, like it's equally bad. Okay, so I'm not bashing Canada. Okay, so just be clear on that. But here, I, I have trouble keeping up with how many taxes we pay. Like, if I'm just honest, right? Because we have income tax, we have property tax, we have property transfer tax, we have sales tax, we have tariffs, if you bring anything in, goods and services tax, which, what other ones am I forgetting? Fuel tax, yeah, carbon taxes, yeah, all these taxes. Um, on federal income tax, it ranges somewhere depending on how much you make and what part of the bracket that part of the income is, it's somewhere between 15 and 33%. Uh, 12% sales tax. Uh, provincial income tax range from 5 to 20% on top of what the federal is already taking as well. Um, and so you add all these up, and then at the end of the day, well, you still got your mortgage or your rent or wherever you're living to pay for that as well. So if you ask me, 20% and it's all said and done sounds pretty good, <laughs> right? Like this seems like a pretty good deal Joseph gave them in the end. Um, that, that, yeah, they were, technically it was all pharaohs, but Joseph took that and he, he, had, he was gracious with them. He equally could have said, you get to keep 20% and 80% is mine. But he said, just give 20% back. He was gracious in that 
moment. And so my point this morning I want to make out of this is this, that in any form of government, I don't think there's any perfect form of earthly government, but in any form of government, what matters most is the character and competence of those in charge. You see, I don't think any of us want to sign up for the Pharaoh kind of government, but if it's being run by a man like Joseph, who is a man of character and competence, then it's not that bad. And equally, in, in our forms of government, if, if our leaders are, are leaders of character and competence, then it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be a good thing, right? He had the competence because he didn't just sit there just handing out all of the grain and get nothing back. He, he was a, a business-savvy business kind of individual. Like, he, he made a good deal um, for Pharaoh, which is who he was under and who he is working for. So he had the competence, but he also had the character that we've seen through Joseph's life all along that he didn't say, you know what? I really want to stick it to these people. I don't really like the Egyptians that much anyway. They threw me in prison. I'm going to, I'm going to get all their stuff now. No, he has godly character in the situation and he acts in a very reasonable way and sets up reasonable parameters for these people. And so I, I encourage you that when it comes to electing our leaders and who we vote for, and, and I say we because I am in, in process of applying for Canadian citizenship where I will be able to vote here as well. Um, not done yet, but hopefully one day it's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I, I encourage you, do we look at people and do we just say, okay, well, out of all that taxes that we know they're going to take from us, how much do they give back to me? Which is honestly kind of a way to look at it. Or do we look at him and say, does this person have character and competence? Can they do a good job? And do they have the kind of character that we need in a leader? Whether that's on the national level, provincial level, or local level. Is this a person of character and competence? Can they do the job and can they do it with good, godly, moral character? Um, because whatever kind of government you're under, it will not be any better than the character of those in charge. If they don't have the character, that's going to come out in the way that they rule and the things that they do. And so what do we do if we find ourselves in a situation where our leaders are not godly? What do we do when we find ourselves in a situation where our, our leaders do not have that character that we would want them to have, or maybe that competence that they need? Well, Paul and Timothy found themselves in just such a situation where their government was using Christians as street lamps and literally putting them on poles and setting them on fire. And here is Paul's instructions to Timothy on how you deal with that in 1 Timothy 2. He says this, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what is Paul's answer? Paul's answer is to pray for them. And I know I've, I know I've heard some Christians say, yeah, I pray for them. I pray God takes them out, like ready to be done with them. But that's, that's maybe not what Paul's saying here. I don't know. Um, maybe in extreme situations that can be our prayer. 
But I, th- I think what, what, what Paul's pointing at is he's saying, hey, pray for them, but pray for them that they'll do their job in a way that we can just be at peace and live a quiet life where we're not being drugged into the streets and beaten and, th- and stoned and tied to poles and set on fire. Pray, th- pray for them that we can live a life that is godly and dignified in every way. Meaning that we want to live first and foremost for Jesus Christ and for the way that he wants us to live. To set that example, to, to shine in our community in that way. And so when we do that, when we're dignified in every way like that, that's going to stand out. And the governing authorities will have one of two approaches to that. They will either applaud that and say thank you, or they will look at that and be challenged by it and threatened by it. Because they themselves do not have that competence and character. And so therefore, it can be a challenging thing. And so, so yes, what should we do? We should pray for them. We should. And we should pray for them regularly. Um, and, that, and to the end, that we might be able to live the life that God wants us to live and do the things that he wants us to do. So he's not saying that when the government leads us to something that's not godly and dignified, we just accept it and go along with that. That's not what Paul's saying. No, our first allegiance is to the Lord. And so if the two are in contradiction with one another, the government versus God, go with God. But so much as it is possible, live at peace with everyone, is what Scripture tells us. And, uh, and so, so don't go looking for trouble, but in the areas where it's either follow God or listen to the government, follow God. Okay. Let's go on with Genesis 47. And it kind of has a shift here, a change in in topic. And and we go into uh, Genesis 47, starting verse 27. It says this. Thus Israel, that's Jacob, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So we see here, this is, and honestly, this is one of those passages that, that if we're just reading our Bible, we probably just read through and like, okay, yeah, he wants to be buried with his parents. Okay, let's move on. But I think there's actually a lot here in what Jacob's desires are relating to his death and what's going to happen after his death. Because when we we talk about funerals or celebrations of life or however you want to phrase it, what we're talking about is is basically this individual's, and and include burials with that, this, this individual's last statement to the world about their life. And Jacob is saying, hey, my last statement to the world, I want to be this, that my hope is not found in the gods of Egypt. 
In a day and age where, where gods were seen as territorial and the Egyptians had all these different gods and all these different things going on, and Jacob's like, no, I know the one true God. I know who he is. He's the God of my grandfather. He's the God of my father. And he has promised our family that land where they are buried. And that's where I want to be is I want to be with them because I want my, even in my last resting place, I want that to be identified with where my hope is in, in God, the one true God, the one who I know. So I think that's what Jacob is saying here. And that's why it's so important to him that he not just, you know, be buried out back. Like, you know, I know a lot of us have kind of the impression, like, don't, I don't really care what you do with my body. I'm not using it anymore at that point, right? Like, put it wherever you want it, do whatever you want with it. Um, but what Jacob is, is doing here is he's telling Joseph, hey, I, I want even where you put my bones to point to who God is. And for that to be known and for that to be reflected on, and Christians uh, for centuries have made decisions in this area of life that directly relate to the gospel, that directly relate to what our hope is in. For much of the world, there are graveyards. Before, before Christianity, we didn't, they didn't really have graveyards in the same ways that we have graveyards today. Uh, many of other uh, cultures and things, they would do what? Well, they would burn the body. They would float the body off on a raft or, um, you know, they would just stick it in a hole somewhere or, or whatever. Um, all these, these different kind of things. But for the Christian... We have hope beyond this life. And because we have hope beyond this life, we even want to signify that in what happens after we die. Because what we believe as Christians is that Jesus died and he was put in a tomb. And then on the third day, he rose again. And that body is no longer dead. And what we believe too for the Christian is that that if our faith is in Jesus Christ and we know him to be our Lord and Savior, then after we die, we too have the opportunity to look forward to the fact that he is going to raise the living and the dead. Amen. And so Christian graveyards have been laid out where people have their own spot, their body is there, and their feet are pointing which direction? Anybody know? The east. Feet to the east. Face up. Why would we do that? When Jesus comes back, where is he supposed to come from? The east. So pop right up. There he is. <laughs> That's the thought. Right? That's why they did it. That's why they laid it out that way. They're like, yeah, we're, we, we want to make it as easy as possible. Just go straight to him right when we come up. Like, that's what, that's what we want. We want to see his face. Don't want to have to turn over in the grave. Don't want to have to do any of that. Like, when, when we're here, boom, up, going to him. And that's been Christian tradition uh, for many, many centuries really now. And so, so why is that? And, and, and does it matter if we do that today? 
that's another question. Because today, I, I see a lot more of cremation and those kind of things. And, and, well, there's always the question, well, what about somebody lost at sea or, or whatever? That was a big one for that period of time where everybody was traveling the oceans on boats that they died on. Um, and, you know, like, well, what happened to them? Well, here's what we also believe as Christians. We actually get a new body. It's a lot better than this one. Major upgrade, okay? And it won't have all the effects of sin that have, have marred this body. Um, won't affect that one. It will be perfect, as God originally designed it to be. And so when we get that new body, I'm pretty sure that the God who created everything by speaking it into being uh, can handle any situation where an old body isn't exactly in the right spot or facing the right direction or is over decomposed or, or whatever, okay? Like, I'm, I'm sure he can handle that. He's, he's got that taken care of, okay? So we don't have to worry about that. So if you're hearing what I just said and be like, oh, well, we didn't do that for grandpa. It's, it's okay. If grandpa knew Jesus, it's okay, all right? Um, Jesus has that taken care of. Um, but my point is this, that in whatever our plans are for after we die, we want to make it clear that that last statement to the world points to where our hope is in. And so for the Christian, as we talk about um, funerals and those kind of things, which I've, I've done funerals for the most godly of people and all of their family members were godly people. And it's a very different thing because they all have hope. It's more of a celebration. It's more of a joy of they don't have to endure this life anymore. We will miss them. We love them. We wish they were still here with us. But we know that they are with Jesus and they are better off. And that funeral is an easy funeral to do as a pastor. Because it's easy to offer hope. It's easy to offer encouragement in that funeral. I've equally done funerals for people where the loved ones couldn't really tell me if they knew Jesus. There wasn't any certainty. There wasn't any, any assurance of that. Some of these were people even in my family um, and family members who I personally, I don't know where they went. And that's a lot harder funeral to do because it's a lot harder to offer hope in that situation when you don't know if there is hope. Equally, I've done some funerals where they're adamant, there's no way that person's in heaven. And that one's really tricky. When everybody in the rooms are kind of like, kind of glad they're gone. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, those get weird. So don't be that person, all right? Don't be that person. Uh, don't, don't make everybody happy you're gone. You're like, where are you going this way? I don't know. Um, I do know this. This is the point. If you know Jesus, make sure your plans for your funeral and your burial point others to the hope that is in him. Okay? If you know Jesus, that's where we want everyone else to know there is hope. I've seen people th through coming to a funeral of a loved one where the gospel was proclaimed those family members that were left behind came to the place of saying, I need Jesus too. I've seen that happen. And so make that plan, make that a part of whoever's to take care of your stuff after you. Make sure they know, hey, this is where my hope is in. 
And this is what I want you to convey to anyone that's there, that after me, I know after my death, I'm going to be with Jesus. Also want to offer us a couple of words of, of caution here. When we're the one dealing with the situation of a past loved one who maybe, you know, we, we're the one having to plan the funeral, we're having to plan the service, or we're having to, uh, we're, we're wanting to be loving and consoling to, to everyone else who's grieving. And I just want to give it some, some words of caution. When comforting a friend who has lost someone they love, don't lie. Don't lie. Don't give up your character and your witness as a Christian to just say what will make them feel better. If there is no hope for eternal life with Jesus in that person's life, based on what you know, do not give them that hope falsely. Because that will, if you know this person was not a Christ follower, and yet you say, oh, well, they're in a better place now. They're better off now. That's a lie. If, if you believe biblical Christianity and you believe what the Bible says, we know that to not be true. To die without Christ is not to be better off. Okay. With that said equally, don't be a jerk. When someone is mourning, don't go in and say, well, that person's burning in hell now. Right? Like, don't, don't go there. No. No. Show love. Show compassion. Point to the truth. It's hard. It takes wisdom. It takes discerning. Um, but, but walk in the truth there. Also, don't, don't sell out sound doctrine in those moments. It's in those moments that I hear some of the weirdest things come out of Christians' mouths. Um, that I'm just like, where did you get that from? Or, or is there Bible for that? And of course, in this situation, I don't correct them. But I'm just like, hmm. One of those that I, I hear frequently is, well, God just needed another angel. Right? We don't become angels. Like, that, that's not in the Bible. Angels are one created thing. Humans are another created thing. And Paul even says that as Christians, we will sit in judgment over angels. So don't, don't think that, like, when we die, we become angels. And also, when a bell rings, an angel does not get its wings. Okay? <laughs> like, that... No. Like, that's, that's not there either. So... I'm just saying like a lot of times in these situations, these weird things come out of our mouths that are more cultural than they are biblical. And so just because it's in a time of mourning or a time of grief, don't fall into saying these things just to make someone else feel better. Yes, say things that make them feel better. Weep with them. Be there with them. Love them. Care for them. Sit with them in that moment. Let them talk, listen to them, but you don't have to have all the answers, and you also don't want to go into saying things that just aren't true. But most importantly today, I want to ask you this, for you, do you have the hope of Jesus Christ? 
Do you know that after this life, you have better things to look forward to? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So to offer any hope outside of that is to make Jesus a liar. And I don't think we want to make Jesus a liar. And so do you in your life have that hope of knowing Jesus is the Son of God? He died on a cross, paying the punishment for sin. He was able to pay that punishment because he never sinned himself. He was a sinless sacrifice. And he offers that price that he paid. He offers the forgiveness that he is given on that cross to take our place for us. Do you know him to have taken your sins on the cross for you? And do you believe that he has been raised from the dead? Do you believe that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that he's going to come back again to raise the living and the dead so that those of us who know him as our Lord and Savior will get to go and be with him for all eternity? Do you know that the worst it can get for you is this life? That it just gets better after this? Are you still in the place of this life is the best there is and it only gets worse after this? I invite you today to come to Jesus. To reach out to him and say, Lord, I want you to be Lord in my life. I believe in what you did. I believe in who you are. And I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Reach out to him today and ask him for for forgiveness for all the ways that we've wronged him. We all need it. And he's faithful and just to give it. And pray to him today to make that your reality. And that's a prayer that he is faithful to answer. So I encourage you to do that. If you've done that and that's who you are, my second encouragement to you is this. Make sure everybody knows it. Don't let there be any doubt in your family when you might pass away over, over where you're going, over what your life's going to be, where, where, what your destination's going to be. Don't, let, don't leave that up to doubt for anybody. Make sure everybody knows and make sure it's very clear because we have a good God and we want to point other people to him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that that you were the perfect sinless sacrifice, that you went to that cross in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made right with you, so that we could have a hope and a future. Lord, I thank you for that. I I pray for anyone here who might need to know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today you might, through the power of your Spirit, bring them to salvation. Bring them to the place of knowing you as Lord so they too have the hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope that you're coming back. Jesus, thank you for all that you do for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. 
Feel free to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and share with others. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at www.potterschurch.ca or you can connect with us also on social media. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of our weekly sermon series. We hope that you have such an amazing rest of your day. Don't you feel yourself.